The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Today the topic is what the Bible says about baptism. Very important topic. Very important because when Jesus, after He rose from the dead, He commissioned the church that would, He would leave behind with only two ordinances. Some people call them sacraments, but really they're ordinances, and there's only two, whereas some, let's say there's seven or six. or No, Jesus only gave two to His church. It was communion or the Lord's table and baptism, and those were to be repeatedly celebrated until His return. So that's been going on for 2,000 years, the two ordinances of the Lord's Supper, communion, and baptism. And because baptism is one of only two ordinances that Jesus Christ gave to His church, it is a priority for the local church celebrating, participating in, teaching on, implementing, and calling people to the ordinance of baptism. So it's an absolute priority, and it's crystal clear in Scripture as to what Jesus meant by baptism. Uh, Nevertheless, there's tremendous controversy, and there has been for 1,600 years, so we're not going to resolve anything today on a universal scale, but we can in our own minds and in our own hearts in terms of the clarity of Scripture. Uh, but one pastor has well said that estimating based on Protestant denominations and other organizations that call themselves Christians, which would include the Catholic Church, uh, all the Protestant denominations, Presbyterian Church, Lutheran, those kind of things, there's probably over 75% of people who call themselves Christians who have never had a biblical baptism. And he says that because most of those churches believe in infant baptism. So we're going to talk about that. But I would propose that the clear New Testament biblical model is not infant baptism. So that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, But this is very confusing. I don't think it needs to be. But here's one of the reasons why it's so confusing. This is one of the best well-known evangelical dictionaries on theology that somebody can buy. And the guy's a decent theologian and many others contributed to it. But here's the, the main article on baptism. Just a sentence is how it starts out. On baptism... In the New Testament, quote, to be sure. So he's saying this is a no brainer to be sure there is no direct command to baptize infants in the Bible. Wow, that's pretty good so far. To be sure there is no direct command to baptize infants, but there is also no prohibition against it. Wow, that is not helpful. As a matter of fact, that really muddies the waters. And what that really does, that undermines the doctrine of perspicuity. That is the doctrine that says that God gave us the Bible in language we can understand, and especially on important doctrines, it is, it is clear. The doctrine of baptism should not be fuzzy and confused. It is crystal clear. And to say, to be sure, there is no direct command to baptize infants, but there is also no prohibition. I mean, you could say that about anything. The Bible doesn't say you can't play five-on-five basketball during church, right? It doesn't say that. So that's called an argument from silence. And I would even say his statement isn't, isn't correct. But there's no prohibition against infant baptism? No, actually there is. By virtue of the command of who should be baptized, we're going to see that. There are prerequisites to being baptized in a biblical manner, clearly. So the prerequisites don't allow for infant baptism. So it is in Scripture. So that's just one example And like I said, 
if you hold to what I believe is just a clear biblical teaching on baptism, you're in the minority in the Christian world. And that's not surprising because if you believe that God created the world in seven days, you're in the minority. And on and on I could go. Uh, but let's go ahead and look at it. So the goal is not here to uh, grind an axe or anything like that. My goal really is just, let's just look at some basic teachings in the Scripture, to, once again, to give us clear parameters on biblical baptism. I'm not here to resolve the 1,600-year-old controversy in the church that ain't going to be resolved in our lifetime until Jesus comes, by the way. Uh, but just to clear, you know, edifying, teaching our saints so that we are all on the same page, particularly those of us who are members of GBF, because you can't become a member of GBF at this local church unless, number one, you're a believer, you've been born again, and then you also obey Jesus Christ with biblical baptism, which we believe is baptism by immersion as a convert who has put faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, so this is a unifying element, a unifying truth, and really this is just baptism 101. So let's go ahead and look at it, and let's look at these basic biblical principles that I've tried to pull out for us, and then some practical application at the end. So let's start with uh, point number one that I wanted to make, and that is the command of just... I just summarized it with these things. The command, the word, the meaning, the picture, the counterfeit, and then the excuses. We're going to start with the command. And you can go to Matthew 28 if you have your Bible. For many of us, this is a very familiar passage. This is uh, called the Great Commission. In other words, it was the last binding exhortation and command that Jesus Christ gave to His church before He ascended into heaven of what the church is supposed to be preoccupied with until He returns. What should a local church be doing? We should be doing Matthew 28, 18 and following. That is just basic. If you're not doing that, you're not a local church. So what is it? What is this great commission, this very basic, simple command Jesus gave to every church, to every Christian, collectively and individually that we are to obey? It is called the great commission. And here really is the imperative starting at verse 19 and 20. This is the great commission. Jesus said, Go. That's a participle in your Greek text, which means it should be translated going or while going, literally. While going, therefore, make disciples. That is the verb. That is the main verb in verses 19 and 20. That is the main command. It's an imperative. It means it is not an option. God commanded the church to do that. We are commanded to make disciples. Pastor Cliff, what is your main responsibility as a pastor, shepherd, church, Christian? It is to make disciples. That's why God has me here. Can't, I cannot make disciples when I am in heaven. That's what a church should do. We are committed to making disciples. That's the main verb. That is what we do. It is an imperative. It is a command. It is active. That means we do it. This isn't just a passive thing. Well, God does it. God's the only one that makes disciples. No, God uses His people. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. We are His co-laborers. That's what Paul meant in Romans chapter 10. Nobody's going to get saved unless they hear the Gospel. Nobody's going to hear the Gospel unless somebody brings the Gospel to them. So God is using preachers. So God uses humans to accomplish His work. Do we save people? No. Does God use us to get the message out so people can be saved? Absolutely. So we, active voice, imperative, we are commanded to make disciples. This is basic Christianity. It's the theme of the whole book that I wrote in 2006. How we, with God, make disciples. But I'm just surprised at how much confusion there is in the Christian world on discipleship, making disciples and what that means in baptism. So anyway, while going, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you 
always, even to the end of the age. So the main point I wanted to make here is the Great Commission is to make disciples. That is what we do. How do we do that? And then he gives three participles in chronological, sequential, logical order to tell us how to make disciples. It starts while going. That's evangelism. We spread the seed of the Gospel. Inevitably, the Holy Spirit causes people to believe people will get saved. And then that's why he says the second participle, once they get saved, then you baptize them. That's a participle. Baptizing. That's step two of making disciples. So, we go and evangelize with the Gospel. People get saved. Then we baptize them formally. It's a formal identification with a local church. That's what it was 100% of the time in the New Testament in the book of Acts. So, it's a formalizing of those who have already been saved. That's baptism. And it defines or modifies making disciples. Step two of making disciples. And step three of making disciples, once you've identified the convert, you've baptized them, they've made a public declaration of accountability to a local church, then for the rest of their life, we are to be the third participle, teaching them everything Jesus ever taught. That's what this is for. And it will take a lifetime to teach it, learn it, as a matter of fact, more than a lifetime. So that's how you make disciples. Evangelize. Baptize those that got saved and disciple, teach, mentor them the rest of their days here on earth till Jesus comes or until they go to be with Him. So that is the command. And at the heart of the command is baptism. So any church that doesn't make a priority of biblical baptism is really being negligent, ignorant, or really just blatantly disobedient like the good friend I had down in Southern California who said he was going to this cool, new, groovy church. Uh, this cool, new, groovy uh, emerging church and we were talking about baptism and I said, so what do they do? Sprinkling or immersion? He said, oh, we don't do baptism. Really? Yeah, it's just too divisive in the Christian world so the pastors and elders decided we're not going to do it. Wow. He thought that was a good thing. Yeah, we don't do communion either, he told me. Whoa. Why is that? Well, it's too, there's too many views. Too divisive. It's like, brother, that ain't a church. So that's real. That is actually going on in churches. So it needs to be a priority. So point number one is the command, and that is A, the Great Commission. Uh, B, uh, it's to the church, the church corporately, the church locally. Individual Christians are responsible for fulfilling baptism, pursuing baptism. And then also, the command to get baptized is to every convert. Uh, it's not just to the corporate body of the church. Acts chapter 2, where Tim read earlier, Peter preaches this evangelistic sermon. It is gospel-oriented. It is about Jesus Christ, that He is the God-man, that He came down and He died willingly on the cross, suffered the wrath of God the Father in the place as the substitute for sinners in fulfillment of Scripture. He was buried. He rose Himself from the dead three days later. He professed Himself as the God-man. He ascended back on high and went to heaven where He came from. That is the Gospel. That is the good news. Any sinner that believes that and comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, forgive me of my sin, I know and believe that You died in my place, will be saved when they believe that and profess that and cry out to God as Savior. That was the essence of Peter's message. The Gospel message. A call to repentance and to be saved. And when he was done preaching this message to primarily a Jewish congregation and many Jewish men who had been trained in the Old Testament, they knew and expected a Messiah to come. And when Peter said, Jesus is the Messiah you were looking for, He is the one that can save you, the Scripture says they were pierced to the heart. They were convicted. They were ready to believe. And that's why they said, what must we do to be saved? What shall we do? Acts chapter 2, verse 37, And Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you... See, there's the individual responsibility. Let each of you... It's an individual responsibility. It's a corporate responsibility of the church to pursue baptism, to teach on it properly, 
and it's also an individual responsibility of a Christian, first repentance, then baptism. That is the biblical model. It's really clear. There's no ambiguity. It's not fuzzy. It's not gray. Repent and then be baptized. That's the consistent pattern in the book of Acts. Here it is. Peter laid it out. So that's the command. The Great Commission to the church, to, to every convert or believing Christian. By the way, a, a, a week-old baby is not a convert. A two-month-old baby is not a convert. A three-month-old baby cannot repent. A four-month-old baby cannot believe in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. An 11-month-old baby... Well, anyway, on and on it goes, right? There's got to be a point where they can understand cognitively. So, that's the issue. Point number two, after the command, is the, very, the word baptism. We need to look at this just kind of in an overview kind of a point. Because people try to make arguments about this and they twist the word baptism all over the place. But the main word for baptism in the New Testament is baptizo and all of its various forms and cognates. Bapto, baptizo, baptimois. You don't have to remember all those, but there's different variations of it. It all means the same thing when you get down to the root of the word. But here's a caution. Anytime you do a Bible study, and I've seen this time and time again, I have been guilty of this. One way you can't study the Bible or teach on the Bible is find a word, isolate that word, come up with the etiological root meaning of the word, and then apply that meaning to every context that it's used. That's illegitimate. That would be like taking the English word record, R-E-C-O-R-D, or record, and come up with a simple definition. Record always means the little plastic thing that spins around and makes music. That's what it always means, no matter what, in every context. Well, that's not true. Because if you're really fast and you win a gold medal and you broke a record, you set a record. That's not a plastic thing. That's a different use of the same word record. So the point is, every word in every language its meaning really is determined by its context, not just its etymological root. Very important. So you can't just take, well, the word baptism or baptizo means this, and it means that same thing in every case it's used. That is not true. The meaning of any word is only determined finally by the context in which it is used. That is key. That is true with baptism. For example, you don't have to write all these down, but did you know that the word baptizo, baptizo, Toe, bap, all the forms of baptism. Are, there are nine different usages, nine different usages of the word baptism in the New Testament. And every one of them is defined by its context. I'm just going to breeze through these, just so you know, as an overview. Here are the nine different ways that baptizo, bapto, and all the variations are used in the New Testament. First of all is as the word washings, taking a bath or washing your hands. Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 9, and that had to do with ceremonial law. Same word. Same root. That has nothing to do with Christian baptism or infant baptism. It just means washings. Uh, the second use of baptism in the New Testament is mosaic baptism. And that's in 1 Corinthians 10.2 where uh, Paul was saying that the 2,000 Israelites that were saved out of Egypt went through the desert. They went across the Red Sea and they were baptized with Moses. They were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea and they were baptized with Moses in the cloud that followed them for 40 years. Wow, that has nothing to do with water baptism. That's not even a, really a physical baptism. That's talking about a spiritual reality. A third kind of baptism was John the Baptist's baptism. And the meaning of his... And that was literally dunking people in water in the Jordan River. People came down... John went where there was plenty of water. And he went, John went down into the river and he dunked people in the river and they came up out of the water. 
That's immersion. That was dunking. That's what the word means. That is the etymological root, by the way, of baptizo, is to dunk, to immerse, to submerge. In some context, it's to drown. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean sprinkle. It means dunk. As a matter of fact, uh, a frequent usage of that word was when people made, they had a dyeing industry, D-Y-E. They would dye clothes and they would take the white shirt and they would dunk it in the dye and totally submerge it. They would baptize it. That's what the word means. That's where it came from. Totally submerge and immerse. And another implication is whatever medium it was dunked to, it took on the identity of the medium it was dunked into. Very important. So baptism, the word, means to dunk and also unanimously in all of its usages can also mean identification. Huge. To immerse and to bring about identification. And that word identification applies in every one of these nine usages of the word baptism. They were identified with Moses in the desert as God delivered His people. They were identified with John the Baptist as He called them in a baptism of repentance to flee from the wrath to come. That was a preparatory baptism of the coming of the Messiah. That was not Christian baptism. Another kind of baptism in the New Testament in John 4 where Jesus' disciples began baptizing when He began His public ministry. That was not Christian baptism. That was also kind of a preparatory kind of baptism, but primarily emphasizing those who wanted to identify with the public ministry of Jesus for those three years. Jesus never baptized. His disciples did. And it said in John 3, they went to a place by the Jordan River where there was plenty of water so that they could go down in the water, dunk people, bring them back up. That's what baptism means. It means to immerse and identify with. Another baptism, John the Baptist mentioned this one, when the Sadducees and Pharisees came out like hypocrites to be baptized with all the other, There were masses. Thousands of people were going to John the Baptist to be baptized because they wanted to repent of their sin. They believed in the coming kingdom. They believed in the Old Testament. And they wanted to turn to God in faith. So they identified with that by getting baptized by John. And then John the Baptist looked out and he saw these hypocrites, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he said, and he called them hypocrites, you brood of vipers. You want to come and get baptized and repent of your sin? Then bring forth fruit fitting for repentance. You're not going to get the baptism of God. You're going to get the baptism of wrath. So John the Baptist referred to a baptism of fire, a baptism of wrath. That is not a good baptism. Uh, That was in Matthew 3.11. Baptism with fire. And that is a future baptism. And that is the judgment of God on unbelievers. Identifying with judgment. Identification. They're going to be immersed, submerged, and a spiritual judgment from God. So there's another example of baptism. Uh, another different use of baptism is when Jesus Christ, uh, James and John, two of His apostles, came up to Jesus in Mark. Beautiful request. Mark 10. Listen to this prayer request. Mark 10:38. James and John, two of the apostles, went up to Jesus and said, Jesus, we want You to do whatever we tell You to do. In Jesus' name, Amen. Wow. Jesus was not happy because they were being arrogant, proud, usurping God's authority and sovereignty. Jesus rebuked them. said, oh really, you don't even know what you're asking. You want me to do anything you ask me to do? Can you do anything that I'm going to do? And they said, yeah, we'll do anything you can do. And he said, can you, can you take on the baptism that I'm about to take on? And they said, oh yeah, we can. He was talking about can you, the baptism I'm about to take. Can you die and be crucified for the sins of the world like I'm about to do? That's how he used the word baptism there. So that was a baptism of crucifixion, judgment, and death. Uh, Then after that, there's the realities of Christian baptism. Jesus died, rose again from the dead, commanded His church to do biblical 
church-believing baptism, and that began with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There was the physical component to it, but there's also the spiritual reality behind the physical component. The spiritual reality that's going on, like we're going to do a baptism today, and when James goes into the water and comes out of the water, he's not getting saved when he does that. He's already saved. He's making a public declaration of something that God has already done in his life. What has God already done? God has saved him from his sin because Jesus died and rose again for James and any sinner who calls upon him. So that's called justification baptism. The reality, Colossians 2.12 says that we have been, if you're a Christian, you have already been identified or baptized into Christ. You've been baptized into His death. You've also been baptized in His resurrection in a spiritual way, not a physical way. Meaning that 2,000 years ago when Jesus was on the cross and God the Father poured out His wrath on Jesus, if you believe in Jesus as Savior, you also were punished and risen from the dead in Jesus somehow mystically, spiritually, 2,000 years ago. And it's a spiritual transaction that we can't even comprehend, but it's a reality. And Paul calls that baptism, but it's, there's no water involved, and that's Colossians 2.12. Then there's Holy Spirit baptism, 1 Corinthians 12.13. Anytime you become a Christian, so on November 8, 1985, 9.32 p.m., Santa Barbara, California, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I was saved, and in that very instant, I was added to or baptized by the Holy Spirit into the universal body of Christ. So there's Holy Spirit baptism. I was baptized. I was joined to the body of Christ. I became a member of the body of Christ. That is a corporate, spiritual, non-physical baptism. And then finally, there is Christian, Christian baptism in water, which is the main point of today. So I know that was a, a lot of stuff, but I just wanted to show you, you just can't take a word and make it mean the same thing all the time. That's totally illegitimate in biblical interpretation. So the word baptismo, it means immerse, dunk, submerge. And its meaning, it always has identification with something as its meaning. And it always has to be identified in the context of how it's being used. What is that person being identified with when that baptism is mentioned? And by the way, we say baptism, and it comes from the Greek baptizo. That is called a transliteration. So when the guys took the original language from Greek, translated it into English, they really didn't help us much by saying, well, here's baptizo, let's call it baptism. They didn't explain the word for us, so that doesn't help. It's called a transliteration, so we have to define it and find out its meaning. So that is the word baptizo. Uh, so the context determines its meaning and usage. Then number three, after the command and the word is the model. What is the model of baptism in the New Testament? It's getting dunked, plain and simple. Getting dunked. Turn to Matt, uh, Acts chapter 8. We'll look at that. Getting dunked. Getting submerged. Getting immersed. Getting covered with water. B. Immediately after repentance. Immediate. That's how it was in the New Testament church. You got saved. Profession of faith. You got baptized. If you understood the Gospel. If you could articulate the simplicity of the saving Gospel, you were a candidate to baptism. It wasn't... Okay, you need to take a 12-week class for two hours with the elders every Sunday to make sure you're saved. And then if you pass our test and you give up smoking, you can be baptized. That was not the New Testament model. It was, they got saved, I'm a sinner, saved by grace, I believe in Jesus, here's the Gospel, I want to be 
forgiven by Jesus and I know Him personally, okay, you can be baptized. That's it. Very simple. So, it was getting dunked immediately after repentance in the water, not in a building. Some churches and denominations say that you can't baptize anybody unless you are in the sacred, hallowed institution of their facility. I started thinking about that. Okay, how many New Testament examples are there of somebody getting baptized in a church building? Zero! Why? Because they didn't have church buildings. They're happening all over the place. Oh, there's water. There's a pool. There's a river. There's a lake. There's somebody's backyard. Hey, there's a horse trough. I heard about that one this week. There's a horse trough. There's enough water for dunking. So it's baptism in the water. The building actually has nothing to do with it. Uh, but let's go ahead and look at this in Acts chapter 8 where Philip was out preaching. He's an evangelist. People are responding. Uh, some believed. Those who believed got baptized earlier on in Acts chapter 8. Those who believed in the name of Jesus got baptized. Notice, those who believed, that's the prerequisite. A two-week-old baby can't believe. Peter said you must repent and then be baptized. So then Philip's going around and then he has a divine appointment by God and God picks him up, snatches him up and then instantaneously puts him else, down somewhere else in the desert somewhere. And he meets this influential fellow who was from Ethiopia and he was in his entourage, I guess going home probably. And Philip met him and he's riding in a chariot. And let's look at the story. Uh, verse 26 says, An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go over here. Got some work for you to do. And then, boom, he was there in verse 27. Behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace. So he's a high official of the queen of his homeland. He's an important dude. He was returning, verse 28. And while he's returning in his chariot on the bumpy ride, he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And he's in Isaiah 53, we know from the context. Isaiah 53 is a, a prediction that the Messiah would be crucified on behalf of sinners. 700 years before Jesus was born. Amazing prophecy, Isaiah 53. It is the Gospel. And so this Ethiopian eunuch is reading this Isaiah 53 passage and he's just mesmerized. Wow! And he's confused. This is amazing, but I don't understand it. Verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And when Philip had run up to the chariot, he heard the Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah the prophet. He's reading it out loud, maybe to his cohorts or just out loud. And then Philip says, hey, do you understand what you're reading there in Isaiah 53? And the Ethiopian eunuch said, well, how can I possibly understand unless somebody guides me? I need a teacher. In other words, he didn't understand. So he invited Philip, hey, come up, up here in my fancy chariot. Oh, cool, okay. And the passage which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. That's a prediction of the Messiah, that he'd be crucified as a lamb before his shears. He was innocent, sinless. He does not open his mouth. He trusts God. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. He got punished for our sins. Who shall relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth? The Messiah will die for sinners. That's the point. Verse 34, And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or somebody else we're supposed to be looking for? And Philip opened his mouth, beginning with uh, from this Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Wow. He preached the gospel out of the Old Testament about, and the gospel is Jesus. And as they went along the road, this could have been a long time. He's explaining the scripture. He's explaining who Jesus is, his death, his resurrection, forgiveness of sin. And they're riding along in the chariot, and they came to some water on the side. And the eunuch said to Philip, Hey, Philip, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized right now? Verse 38. And he ordered the chariot to stop. 
And they both went down. So they got out. And Philip says, hey, okay. So apparently, the eunuch put his faith in Jesus Christ, became a Christian, was converted, repented, believed. And then he tells Philip, I want to be baptized right now. There's some water. And Philip says, okay. So they got out of the chariot. uh, And then they went down into the water because verse 39 says, they came up out of the water. Verse 38, they went down into the water. No sprinkling going on. Philip dunked him. Immersed him. End of verse 38. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water after being dunked. So there it is. That was the model. Getting dunked. Let's go on to number four. We've got the command, the word, the model, and now the meaning, which I already alluded to earlier or referenced. The meaning of baptism, baptizo, Christian baptism, getting dunked, getting immersed, means identification. Whatever you're getting dunked into is what you are identifying with, either on a spiritual level or a physical level. So the meaning is identification. Also, so when we do water baptism, that candidate who's already been saved by Jesus Christ, the reason Jesus has them go through this outward sign, it's a symbol, that's all. It's a living metaphor. And they are publicly showing that they have already identified themselves with Jesus' death for their sin and Jesus' resurrection for newness of life as a Christian and they've been adopted into the family of God. And this act, this outward external symbol is simply a picture for us of the inner reality that has already happened. That's all it is. That's the meaning. That is the significance. It is identification and union with Christ in His death and resurrection, being born again, totally forgiven of sin. That's the meaning of the outward sign. It's identification, B, It's an outward sign of an inward reality. They've already been saved. You don't get baptized to be saved. You get baptized because you have been saved. God doesn't like you more after you get baptized. You don't get baptized so you can go to heaven. Some denominations literally teach that. But that's not biblical. So it's an outward sign of an inward reality. And then uh, C, it's a public declaration of conversion based on belief in the Gospel. Colossians 2.12 is a great verse on this reality. Paul talking to people who have already been saved by Jesus Christ by believing in the Gospel. And he's talking about the spiritual reality that happened when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he tells these Christians, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which also you were raised up with Him to newness of life. That's the spiritual reality. This is the physical sign and representation of that literal reality that happened 2,000 years ago. So that's the meaning of Christian baptism. It is a symbol of these great truths. Identification and union with Christ and His death and resurrection being adopted into His family for the forgiveness of sins. Let's go on to number five. And another related corollary issue is the picture. What does it picture? Well, the meaning primarily is identification. And the outward picture or symbol, in addition to what I already said, is a total cleansing. Peter uses the word baptism in this way. 1 Peter 3.21, referring to cleansing. There is an inextricable nuance of the word baptizo that had to do with water and cleansing. Purification. Complete purification because you're dunking that item totally in the water. You're totally submerging it. So it is complete and total cleansing. That was the picture. Total immersion. Very important. Because just sprinkling on the head, getting baptized, that's not total immersion. That is not total cleansing. 
But interestingly enough, because that's how the Catholic Church does baptism. That's how they teach it. Infant baptism with just a little sprinkling. on They lay you down and then they sprinkle a little water on the forehead of the baby. That's it. That is not total cleansing. That is not a picture of total cleansing. That's only a picture of partial cleansing, which actually coincides with Roman Catholic theology because they believe you are progressively saved. It's called infused righteousness. There's a whole bunch of things you've got to keep doing to get more and more of your sins forgiven. And you can never know for sure in this lifetime that you are totally forgiven. I grew up 19 years as a Catholic. I can tell you that. 12 years of Catholic school. That is the teaching. I was told I can never know in this life I have total forgiveness of sin. But the picture, the biblical picture, is total immersion because it represents total cleansing. That is the picture. And that's why immersion... More than any other mode of baptism, whether it's sprinkling on the head, others pour on the head. Well, that's a little more water. But it's not the picture representing total cleansing from Jesus Christ. So this metaphor was chosen by God very specifically to communicate a very graphic imagery of total forgiveness of sin. Because when anybody puts their faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of their sin, calling out to Him as Lord and Savior, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You shall be saved, says Romans 10, 9 and 10. And the moment you believe that, you are saved of all of your sins. Past sins, present sins, and all future sins you would ever commit have been nailed to the cross where Jesus took your penalty. Total cleansing, once and for all, final, irrevocable, eternal. That is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That is good news if you are a sinner today. And then, again, just the reminder uh, that the picture not only is total cleansing, but also death, burial, and resurrection. And what I wanted to emphasize there, because that's the spiritual reality. You're getting baptized because Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for your sin. And of the three modes that are used for baptism, immersion, sprinkling, and pouring, which one of those modes better represents the act of Jesus dying, being buried in the earth, and arising again from the grave in newness of life. It is immersion. And that is explicitly the picture. You go down in the water, dead, dying with Christ. You are dead. You're being drowned. You died with Him. And then you come up out of the water. That is resurrection life. That is an intentional picture from God's point of view about baptism. Romans 6 and Galatians 3 are explicit about that imagery. So that's the picture of baptism. And finally, number 6 or, yeah, is the counterfeit. This is the competitor that has reigned supreme for 1,600 years in the professing church. Catholic church, Lutheran church, Presbyterian church. By the way, many Presbyterian believers, scholars, Christians, pastors that I highly respect, some of them are some of my favorite preachers and teachers. This would be an area where we would disagree. Jay Adams is a wonderful man of God in his 80s that I absolutely admire and love have many of his books, but we would disagree on baptism. He's into infant baptism and sprinkling and even assigns realities to infant baptism that aren't in the Bible. That when you baptize a little infant, somehow there's proxy faith from adults in the believing community infused or something in that little baby. No, that's not in the Bible. Did you know there's not one example in the New Testament of an infant being baptized? Not one. There's not one command in the New Testament to baptize a baby. All the commands are to converted believers. They could be four years old, five years old if they understand. They can be, but not infants. What is the counterfeit? Well, A, infant baptism. It reigns supreme in the professing Christian church today. 
I put Ezekiel 18.4 there and following because Ezekiel 18.4, God says, every soul that sins, it is mine. Every individual soul is mine. And the father shall not be punished for the sins of the son and the son shall not be punished for the sins of the father and they also shouldn't be counted righteous one for another. There are no proxies, spiritually speaking. That is the clear teaching of Ezekiel 18. And that is the clear emphasis from Jesus in John 3 when He told the righteous, so-called Pharisee Nicodemus, who had the Old Testament memorized probably, you know what? You need to be born again. Being a Jew isn't good enough. Being born as an Israelite isn't good enough. You need to be spiritually reborn. And it's on an individual basis. That's why Jesus said, wide is the road to destruction. Narrow is the road to salvation. Why? Because Narrow is the road because it's a turnstile. You go in one at a time. So, infant baptism by proxy is not biblical. And then the other form of baptism that is not legitimate, B, is sacramental baptism. And that's when you assign any kind of inherent goodness or absolution or the forgiveness of sin or imputed righteousness simply through the act of getting dunked in water. That is nowhere in the Bible. You got saved one way and one way only. And that's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace, by grace, by grace, you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. Not through baptism. Not through obedience to ceremonial rules. You've been saved by grace through faith. That's it. Through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It was all of Him, none of us. He is the Savior. Same thing in Titus chapter 3. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's through God's grace that we have been saved. And Him alone. We can't add anything to the Gospel, otherwise we pollute the Gospel. So that would be the counterfeit. It's out there reigning supreme, like I said. There's salvation in no one else except Jesus Christ, Him alone, and in His Gospel. Okay, finally, the excuses. These are just excuses I've encountered from Christians who didn't want to get baptized. These are professing Christians. Many of these were actually real believers. Here are just excuses I've heard over the course of 20 years at times where Christians don't want to get baptized uh, in no order of priority. I put the top ten reasons why professing Christians don't get baptized. hundred people surveyed. Number one, bad theology. Maybe you were born and raised as a Presbyterian, Lutheran, whatever, and you just can't get it out of your DNA. And you can't be objective. I've seen that time and time again. But I've seen people with, over time with biblical teaching and prayer and dependent upon the Holy Spirit searching the Scriptures objectively and honestly submit to biblical teaching, change their mind, and come to and embrace... Biblical baptism. I baptized several people like that. But it, they started out with bad theology. Number two, there are people simply who are, there are Christians simply who are not submissive to what Scripture teaches. <clears throat> so you're going around and around, you're debating with them, and you say, well, what about Acts chapter 2? And uh, you've got to repent before you get, and then they'll, they don't want to talk about that. They want to hopscotch and go somewhere else. Yeah, but R.C. Sproul said, and I said, no, let's go back to the Bible. Says, yeah, but D. James Kennedy said, well, I want to go back to the Bible. Well, J.I. Packer said, well, I want to go back to the Bible. Well, uh, John Calvin said, well, I want to go back to the Bible. Well, Martin Luther said, well, I want to go back to the Bible. And on and on and on. Well, Augustine said, can we just go back to the Bible? These people are not submissive to the authority of Scripture. Number three, some people are just ignorant. In other words, it's not taught or emphasized in their church. I was in a church like that for five years. Got saved at age 19. Didn't get baptized till I was actually about 23. Why? Because I spent three, four years in a church, never mentioned baptism. Never taught on it. I, I didn't even know about it. That's possible. That's innocent. But it's still ignorance, not an excuse. Number four, maybe it's marginalized or dismissed in your church. Ah, oh, it's not a big deal. You can if you want. Uh, whatever. That happens all the time. 
Uh, number five, some people don't feel worthy. I've dealt with believers like that. Uh, one brother I was discipling, and man, you got saved two years ago. Have you been baptized yet? No. How come? I'm, well, I'm not, I haven't arrived yet. I'm not worthy. I'm a, a terrible sinner. Yeah, that's why you should get baptized, dude. It's a public declaration. You're a terrible sinner and that God has cleansed you by faith through the Gospel. And so we worked on it for two months. Praise God, he got baptized. But it was wrong thinking. I'm not worthy. Well, none of us are worthy. Uh, six, some people are embarrassed. I deal with that all the time. They don't want to stand up here and say something. Well, you know what? You don't have to say anything. Just plug your nose. I'll do it. <laughs> so you've got to work with people's fears. That's a legitimate reality. Uh, we've had people. I've baptized people in wheelchairs. Or people who couldn't even walk with four of us carrying them. Um, number seven, some people are just indifferent. It's not a priority. Christians, man, I got my vacation. I got my this. I got my that. I got my TiVo. I do things. I watch the football game. The 49ers are looking good this year. Dude, I ain't got time for church all the time. Indifference. Uh, another number eight, defiance, rebellion. Could be that you've got a believer who's courting sin, hiding sin in their life somewhere in there. They don't want to be exposed. Living a double life. And they're just downright disobedient. Jesus said, get baptized after you get saved. And they're just saying, no, I don't want to. That's blatant disobedience. And then finally, um, oh, this is a related one. Number nine, pride. This is common. You know, I, I, I'm guilty of number nine. Got saved at age 19. Was in a shallow church for three years. Never heard about baptism. Started going to a church that taught on baptism. Heard many sermons on it. Saw baptisms every Sunday night after about six months. I knew, man, I need to do that. I'm being disobedient. But if I go up there and give my testimony and say, I got saved three years ago, everybody's going to know I'm a flake and disobedient. That, and I don't want to do it. I don't want to be exposed. That was my pride. Then the Spirit of God had to convict me and I finally caved and bowed the knee and said, you know what? Forget the pride. I've got to be obedient. Pride, fear of accountability, and commitment. And then finally, number ten, there are some people who point blank, they're just not regenerate. They are not a Christian. They're not born again. They profess to be so, but when it crunch time, okay, you need to get baptized then if you're a Christian and they stiff arm you, I'm out of here. I'm going to go find a church that doesn't care or won't hold me accountable or where I can get lost in the crowd. So those are just, those are my personal experiences of reasons why Christians didn't want to get baptized. The good news is out of most of those, I've seen people overcome those hurdles and get baptized in obedience. Fantastic. And that's what we need to do. We need to be persistent, teach truth. And Jesus said, know the truth and the truth will set you free. You don't need to spend hours and hours and hours debating paedo-baptism and the Presbyterian church's view. And John, That is an absolute waste of time. Stay with Scripture. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not logical arguments from church history. That has no power. Power is only in the, the living and abiding Word of God that penetrates the very hearts, minds, and conscience of people. Well, with that, we've got a great privilege now to perform a baptism. And before we do, let's go ahead and pray to the Father and thank Him for His Word of truth and that we can comply with it and obey. Father, we do thank You for the Bible, the Word of God, the clarity of the Word of God thank You that You spoke in plain language so that we could understand it. God, thank You for the Holy Spirit who lives in believers to help us apply it. Thank You for convicting us of sin, for being our teacher. Thank You for softening my heart when I was proud and resisted baptism for a year out of pride. 
God, if there's any believer here who's a Christian who hasn't been baptized yet, God, I pray that You would keep working on their heart and lighten their mind, give them illumination to the understanding of Scripture. They would talk with You about it and pray and that You'd draw them to a point of obedience so they can proclaim to everyone what You've done graciously on their behalf. Thank You so much for Jesus Christ, His saving work, His willing death and resurrection on behalf of sinners, all for Your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.